Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales, a meeting with professional storytellers. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I am glad that you're here. What can I say about Megan Wells? Well, she's not an elder, that's for sure. I met her for the first time at the National Storytelling Conference in 2016 in Kansas, Missouri. She was receiving her Circle of Excellence Award, as was Janice Del Negro. Looking at the photos from the booklet from 2016, we all looked a lot younger back then. I ended up in a hotel room with her, with a bunch of other people, I have to say. They were swapping stories. She told a tale, a personal story, that blew me away. I cannot remember the story, but I remember the experience, and it was powerful. I thought at the time that she was a teller of personal narratives, but discovered afterwards her work is steeped deeply in myth, legend and folklore and literary telling. She tells stories written by Ray Bradbury with his permission and Bram Stoker. I think he's dead, so she doesn't like his permission, but anyway. This was a powerful interview with some very insightful and surprising answers. Please enjoy the conversation with Megan Wells. Megan Wells, thank you so much for being part of my podcast. I'm very excited to have you here. I have long admired you from a distance. Um, thank you. I first heard you tell a story, just a one story, and it was a personal narrative story in a hotel room which was packed with people <gasps> at the National Storytelling I uh, remember Convention. That. Right, that's, that was the first time I saw you. And it, oh my gosh. I can't that remember was... the story. Yeah, um, it was pretty but, personal. It was a pretty big risk for me. So your it, first meeting with me was more on the intimate. Yes. Yeah. With a room full of people. With a room full of people. Know, 15, 20 people in the room yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my daughter was there was. and played her ukulele, which was a big risk for her too. Yeah. It was, it was night and she must have been what, 15? Yeah. 15, right? Something like that. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, it was. There, I, loved, I loved your story. I absolutely you. adored your story. Thank you. And the power and the conviction with which you told it. Thank you. And then working with you on the Hans Christian Andersen Storytelling Festival this summer <sighs> and hearing you tell there, it was like, I have to have you on my podcast. <laughs> no ifs, buts, or maybes. Yes. Um, and so I'm Indubitably. glad to Indubitably. 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 <laughs> so what was it like growing up? What was it like growing up? Little Megan uh, I have three older brothers, so uh, it was a lot like that. So I uh, didn't really understand myself as a girl okay. until uh, I started to change a little bit. Well, you know, mom was always trying to remind me I was a girl. That was right. really important to her that I was a girl. Uh -huh. And that was okay. I knew how to do that for her. She'd put me in dresses and all of that. And I could go, okay, great. That's what girls do. Get this off. I want to get on my bike. <laughs> so uh that was my i think that was my saving grace uh living in nature i really lived in nature i was in suburbs des plain suburbs but this is 19 
60 through 69, 70. So I grew up in trees and riding on streets and skating on creeks and following the haunted uh, railroad tracks and, you know, swing sets at midnight. And, you know, I mean, it was, I could climb out my window and run down the alleyway. So when I read Ray Bradbury at, what year did I read Ray Bradbury? I think here in America, we get that somewhere around fifth or sixth grade. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, he understood my childhood. That He really understood my childhood. So I, I really connect with him. Yeah, one of the first science fiction stories, um, for want of a better word, was The Pedestrian. Mm. And I was just in awe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what is it, like two pages? Yeah, right, right. Uh, and it was the whole world was built in those two pages and you knew exactly what he was talking about. Totally. It was amazing. Totally. Yeah, awe is a good, that's, a, that's the right word for it. I think, I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And there are times when he goes on too much. Not everything that Ray Bradbury did is awe, but... Mm-hmm. A lot I of think good. like there's so much awe because he did so much. He just got right. better and better and better and better and better and better and better. And he was versatile too. Yes, he was style, versatile. I agree. Which I liked because Halloween, the Halloween tree. Yes, beautiful. It's one of my favorite stories. It's such a good story. Are there storytellers in your family? I mean, I'm, other uh, than your brother's uh, going, she did it, uh, we didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, my dad was Swedish and very stoic. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so he'd be very quiet at the table. Um, he had a problem with alcohol. So when he drank, he, he got louder. Um, so uh, uh, jokes was, was his, thing, his thing. About once a month, we'd get a joke <laughs> at the dinner table. And he would have well rehearsed it. They're usually long-form jokes. And nice. he'd just kind of be like, I've got another one, you know, and we'd all be like, oh, okay, here we go. And he'd get a shake in his voice <coughs> and then he'd tell his joke. So that was a big deal for him. It was a very big deal for him. Very introverted, shy man. He um, started out as a, did he work for two companies? And the first company for was probably like six months before he landed in what became Chase Supply Company. One job, one company his whole life and wow. worked his way up through that company. So he was an inventory boy. Oh, that's when he fell in love with my mother. So he was in the back in the inventory, uh, heating and refrigeration supply warehouse. So the counterman would say, Johnny, go get me. And Johnny would go in the back and come back fast. Because Johnny is a good Swedish name. Yeah, it is a good Swedish name. Johnny Peterson. Johnny Peterson. So he then um, uh, became the counterman and was fantastic at it. He yeah. loved it. Uh, but there was some pressure in the household, in the marriage. Mom kind of wanted him to wear a suit. You've been in this company so long, you should be wearing a suit now. So we got pushed up into vice president of something or sales, sales and marketing. Okay. My introverted father. Yeah. Oh my God, he hated it. I bet. Yeah, sales is hard. Oh. So sales he went really to uh, Dale Carnegie School that 
Dale Carnegie class, mm-hmm. um, how to win friends, influence people. And yeah. he, he'd have to make speeches, <laughs> you know, and then he'd, he'd make his speech and he'd always have a really good joke. <laughs> My, that's it. So My alcohol com- was, was that to help him with his, his speeches or was yeah, that just help him with yeah. his speeches? I think he did Toastmasters. I think he did Toastmasters too. Mom would just talk personal. She always kind of wanted to get you at the counter when, you know, how are you feeling? This is how I'm feeling. So there were no natural storytellers. So not even like family stories? No, not even family stories. I don't know if that's alcoholism. I actually think that's probably alcoholism now now that we're talking this out loud. Never really thought about it that way, but I think that's alcoholism. There's so much you can't talk about. And my dad was the son of an alcoholic who was the son of a brutal alcoholic. So uh, in Sweden, you know, they're not talking much. So Mm -hmm. that generation came over, had kids. They weren't talking much. And and so then the alcoholism. uh, And there was some, there was some, he was quite brutal that three generations back. Yeah, I think the alcoholic household is definitely a no talk rule. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I'm going to back up a bit. So there was no storytelling in your early yeah, life. Yeah, there wasn't. And you went to, you got an MFA from the Illinois State University. Mm-hmm. And you got a bump for. <laughs> you got a BFA in theater at Illinois Western University. Now, did they come? Well, they obviously didn't come one after the other. They did pretty much come one after oh, the other. Yeah, I got my BFA. I went to Chicago for a year and then uh, came back and went to the next school next door. Uh, So Illinois Wesleyan is south and and then uh, Illinois State is probably about 20 miles north. And I got my master's degree in theater. So I was in that neck of the woods for about seven years. Wow. Now, have you ever Mm -hmm. moved away from Chicago area? No, I've never moved. There was always uh, something there. There was always mom and dad and uh, then marriage and my own kids and then my mom and dad dying. And uh, and now my kids, I'm finishing my kids. So I'm kind of, it's my nest. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's my nest. And you got into acting. I did. And I've seen some of those early pictures with your long, wavy, blonde hair. Yes. Long, very actressy. Yes, very actressy. Yes, very theatrical. Yes. Yes. Well, theater gave me a place to uh, manage the alcoholism at home. Really? How, how did how did that work then? Yeah, I didn't really I didn't really see it till a long time later. I went, holy cats! It saved my freaking life. The theater did. The theater did. Uh, the first uh, play I was in was the Miracle Worker. And I was cast as the mother. Uh-huh. And I was inside a very difficult story with a girl who couldn't speak. And, uh, oh. right, I'm the mother and uh, trying to hold that and love her and protect her. And then there's this Annie Sullivan character who loves her enough to push her out. And I mean, the whole thing was just this drama playing out a lot of the material that I had unconsciously inside of me. I was gobsmack. So that was wow. that. That was that. That theater until 30. Yeah, until 30. Nonstop. Theater, 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 theater. And you also directed when you were in theater as well. I did. I loved directing. Loved it. 
Yeah, Do you but, like being in control? Uh, no, I like um, pulling people into their highest and best. Oh. So is that, I guess that would go more in an influencer category, right? To I, sort don't, of, I don't know. To sort I, of I would suss control. out what's in there and encourage and love people into taking risks. That was an influencer, though. That would be more of, um, I mean, there's, there's too much compassion yeah, yeah, I don't know. For an influencer. Yeah, I don't know. What I, that's I can't think of the word. It's like way back in my head, and it's not coming yeah. forward. Yeah. So collaboration it was a collaboration for me, right? And then and the, you do that. So hang on. So you're also. So I'm going to be jumping around a bit. You jump. I think, I think jump. with this with this particular conversation that we're right. having here, because. There are some things that are leading to others. So you also you also do life coaching and you're a facilitator. I am. I absolutely so, am. Yeah. So that is also pulling out the best person. Yeah. So how do you get into that? I, uh, I well, I had to handle the alcoholism, right? And not my own, my dad's. Right. So I, uh, unfortunately, at 15, I suffered a, a pretty bad perpetration. And I had a couple of years of being perpetrated really bad by really toxic masculine. So I was really, really wounded. And uh, so I uh, ended up, uh, someone invited me to take a look at this thing called adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. What? And I remember. I remember I got the pamphlet and I read the pamphlet and I literally, Simon, I literally looked around my little studio because I thought they were all watching. Wow. It's like, they know. How do they know? I just read every single secret of my personality in this pamphlet and realized that I was not alone, that I was, I was made by my circumstances to be uh, protective in particular ways. That must have so, frightening and amazing at the same time absolutely in equal measure and i'm an introvert like my father so i got myself to go and sit quiet in those 12-step meetings for a year and then finally started to be able to talk a little bit about it because they are 12-step meetings they are 12-step meetings yeah. yeah so i was in 12-step seriously for years just digging and digging digging down into the wounds and uh pulling up the wounds and then learning that whatever is troublesome out there is really only because it's troubling me in here. When it's not troubling me in here, it doesn't trouble me out there. I can see it and look at it and understand it, right? It's all a mirror, right? People try to solve their problems by fixing what's outside there. And it just... Sometimes it's fun to do that. Yes, yeah. But the real work is on the inside. The real work is on the inside, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So and, I and it's like onions years. as well. You kind yeah. of like, peel, oh my peel, gosh, peel. I figured it out. And then it's like, oh, figured it another out. layer. Another layer. layer. And then, oh, I'll figure it out. No. Oh, crap. There's another layer. Another layer. Another layer. <laughs> so then that led me into, um, uh, I got a couple of uh, certificates uh, in emotional intelligence, um, uh, uncoupling, uh, conscious uncoupling, and uh, just all of a sudden, next thing you know, people were just kind of calling me for couples work. So I put out my shingle as a coach because uh, it's really expensive to go back to school to get another master's degree. Yes. 
you know, and I am more of a coach than a counselor. Because you, you could also get one, you know, a, a massage therapy thing. Because isn't it the letters are very similar, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that that's say, great. Nobody has to know. No, right? You just, right? just say know. like life coach, and life then those coach. letters underneath. And those letters. Like, oh, they, they're certified for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I adore helping people reframe their pain. I absolutely adore it. I feel uh, utterly useful, and it gives me hope for the world. I bet. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. There's a lot of healing to be done. A lot there. of healing there's, to be done. You know. I mean, yeah. it always has been, but I think yeah. it's it's brim. You know, it's like that. Well, yeah. It's like I can relate to it as eczema, right? The the waste yeah. that I have in my body doesn't go out in its normal way, so it comes out through my skin. Yes. Right. As eczema. Yes. And I think that's that's what's happening to America right now. Yes. Um, and a lot of other countries too. Um, that 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 waste is now no longer under the skin. It's like on the surface. And yes. there's, there's a lot of healing. It's not that the healing never had to be done before. It's just it, it's it, it's apparent now. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you were a life coach and facilitator before getting into storytelling? No. No, the life coaching came out, uh, finally came out of the storytelling. The I became a storyteller out of theater. I was doing theater in Chicago professionally. And then, um, long story short, that was the AIDS epidemic. Right. So my friends were dying left and right, right. all around me. And one of my friends got actually kicked out of his apartment because of his AIDS. And he was set to live with another mutual acquaintance. And she got scared. God bless her. She just got scared. She said, Tom, I can't do it. So I went, well, I can. For God's sake, yes. So he lived with me. And uh, honest to God, Simon, he had a, a vision, a dream that was like a vision. Where he dreamed himself inside these huge waves, lost control. The voice says to him, lean into the wave. And in the dream, he leans into the wave and he's absolutely lifted into this crystalline bubble of peace and calm. And he tells me this that morning in the bathroom. I'm getting ready to go for work. He comes in, he sits down, he tells me this. And he's like, he's like, oh, that was a pretty good dream. I'm like... Yeah. That I think that's a vision. I think that goes in the vision category. You know, write it down. He's like, nah, I'll never forget it. So I'm like, I'm gonna write it down for you. <laughs> so I wrote it down for him and uh the AIDS really got bad and uh he was quite a courageous hero. He went and did theater. Um Samuel Beckett's Endgame. Oh. And he did it for a year. He toured it with a theater called company called One World. And then when he was in his last stages, quarantined in a room in a hospital, uh, he uh, reached a real anxiety point. And uh, I wanted to come, and he wouldn't let me come see him. He said, no, your job is to remember me as I was. You will not have this image in your head. And I'm like, you know, I have this image in my head, just hearing your voice. I have this image. And anyway, uh, I sent that dream then to his sister. 
And she read his dream back to him. Wow. And he lifted into that bubble. He leaned into his AIDS, leaned into his dying, and went out like a bodhisattva. And honest to God, Simon, I was absolutely seared by it. So I was telling people, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to tell people what happens to you or your dreams because you can't carry your own. You forget your own. You don't know what's important. So you have to have loved ones and you tell them and they hold it for you and they give it back to you when you need it. I had no idea that this was called storytelling. Um. So I ended up at uh, National uh, a friend of mine as, as said, an audience participant as an audience like yeah. some well you gotta come see this thing it's called storytelling yeah whatever okay was I'm this Ray I Martin? yes that was it that was it find stories you love and tell them oh my god walking like like uh, general's orders right from the start I feel so blessed beautiful man beautiful man and he paints as well doesn't he Yes, he paints as well. I've seen some of his paintings. I, I follow him on Facebook, or followed him on Facebook. I don't do much Facebook mm-hmm. anymore. So when you when you went to National, mm-hmm. which was 25 years ago? Yeah, about 25, maybe 26 years. I can't remember the exact year. Okay, so what um, ha, ha, what was the transition like between act, act, actress and storyteller? Ah, full of bumps. Full of bumps. Yeah? Yeah, because... Uh, there were two things really going on. One was I had to relocus my energy, right? Because an actor's goal is to draw the audience up uh, into the the story on the stage, right? To keep the balls all going up here, right? So you're right. you're you're sort of watched, right? It's a and, it's a participation. Uh, it's um it's a um, a viewer sport. A viewer sport. And so uh, uh, I had to reorient that then to putting the story in the audience's head. Um, and so that's that's a big arc. I think that took me about seven years to do wow. that. So that was one thing, a long practice of slowly attuning the locus and the language. Um, so you had to unlearn. I had to unlearn. Yeah, unlearn and learn a whole bunch of new things. And and at the time I was doing it, mm-hmm. storytelling had come back, it was coming up in America, up from, uh, up from Ray Hicks and the librarians in New York kind of simultaneously. So like it, Elizabeth Ellis and, and Gail Ross, right? Yeah. I'm assuming at that point because you're yeah. you're, we're in the 80s. Are we in the 80s or not? Uh, yeah, in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, late 80s. So for a theatrical, per, a theatrical woman, I, I, you know, I cut my teeth on uh, the Trojan War and uh, Psyche and Eros. I went straight into the Greek myths, the Greek epics. Wow. I went straight <laughs> into the Greek epics. That's where I wanted to be. Having... And so that community was a little like, you're supposed to stand with your hands in your pockets and not move them much. And I was like, how do I do that? You know, screw that. Ah! <laughs> so I did, 
I actually did. I followed their advice. I did. You did what you were told? I did what I was told because I loved it so much. So for the next two years, I told only with word, standing very still, only with word. And it was the best bad thing that could have happened to me. Oh, I bet. It forced, it like forced me out just only into the word. And, uh, and then slowly, then slowly it, right, then characterization got to come back. Then theater got to come back through the characters and the characters' voices and their feelings and their arc. And uh, it's fascinating because so many storytellers I've met, the way that they would, they just fell upon it and just they were taken over by it. But and for you, it was it was similar, but your whole process was very different because you had to you had to break the bones to reset them. Yeah, I had to break the bones. And and then you had to like learn, you know, the power of the word from a storyteller's point of view as opposed to an actor. That's right. point of view. That's right. I didn't have to learn how to characterize, which right. is what many storytellers are trying to learn how to actually honestly be possessed by character. Right. And uh, that I that I had in spades. Right. But I had wow. to grow. I had to grow the the narrative. Was that a hard road for you to take. It was. It was. It was. It really, seem, I mean, for me, that doesn't seem easy at all. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't because I had a lot of well-meaning people uh who did who did not understand that thing that megan was doing you know <laughs> and uh and i'm big and intense obviously i mean you know i'm yeah i'm just big and intense so i'm a little i'm a little much when i come into a room anyway right so i just i just didn't fit for a long time and i couldn't leave it i absolutely couldn't leave it it, oh my God! I know it's it is. just it's like a fishing it, line that you just can't. It's like it's, a, yeah. it's not a catch and release hook. No, <laughs> it's not a sure. catch and release hook <laughs> at all. Yeah. So you you went straight into so you went straight into these Greek myths. I did crazy. Yeah, but then you totally so crazy. I'm, so then I look at your your list of stuff that you've done. Yeah. And a lot of it. It's not through the male lens point of view. It's from the female point of view, through the female lens. Yes. So when you told the story of the Trojan War, did you right off the bat start telling it from the point of view of Helen? No. Or was that something that you came to? It's interesting. I I did. Actually, it was an assignment from Janice Del Negro, so I can't take full credit for it. it nice. Was, yeah, she saw me in a storytelling concert. She saw that I wasn't fitting in. And she said to me, she said, I could either, I could either hate you or befriend you. She so I decided to befriend you. <laughs> I, love I was like, please, please. <laughs> so she said, I think you need to do Helen of Troy. I said, I hate Helen of Troy. And she said, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, uh, I was mad. I was really mad. I was mad. I was mad at the way she was treated because it's it's uh, it's it's a perfect mirror for um, uh, our societies, uh, sort of splitting of the feminine. It's either um, uh, you, it's either virginal or 
a whore, virgin whore, virgin whore, virgin whore. It's just, and uh, and it does that throughout the throughout the Greek myth. It does. It's like it does. she's a virgin. She's a whore. She's a virgin. She's a whore. Totally. So it's yeah. perfect for me. Yeah. So I had to then, uh, you know, I'm I'm a research nerd. I mean, I put on my glasses and my, you know, my sweaters with my, and I just read, 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 read. And then I found all these little missing pieces. And then I was able to go, She's oh, she's actually a woman. <laughs> Funny that. Funny that. <laughs> so uh, I tell it as a narrator, and I do the men just as much as I do the women. But I think what I've done is I've restored Helen. And rather than her being an icon or a projection, I've actually made her three-dimensional human equal uh, to the men. Wow. How hard was that? whole process oh it was, I was it was awesome yeah it was like really hard <laughs> you know what i mean like uh, yeah yeah like oh god this is hard yeah <laughs> like <laughs> not, you know and it's not a well when i first did it the first times i performed it, it was two hours two two and a half hours it's the trojan right. war now you've got it down to one one hour and twenty two minutes. Or so. One hour and twenty two minutes. <laughs> yeah, and I go longer if people want, but mostly, right. you know, they. That's right. I really right. yeah. So right. there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff of yours I want to see, and you also do the story of Shahrazad, of course, because yeah. um, Shahrazad is another one of those. Yeah. You know, she's not just a bookend of for a whole collection of stories. She's no. actually freaking monster of a woman when. <laughs> Absolutely. To, to take on a monster of a man. She totally did. She and, totally did. And, and you know what? And... Here's what I love about Scheherazade for me mm -hmm. is that she actually didn't judge him. She saw the wounded man deep within him. Right. And so she, uh, she stayed in there, not suffering as a victim, but also not uh, the witch looking right. for a way to bring him down. She actually moved into her healer. And she really legitimately healed him through story with wicked sense of humor. Yes. And just a love of blood. And I mean, just like, <laughs> she right? just like, she must have had a lot of brothers. Yeah. And I, what I think is funny with you is, is well, not funny, but I, ironic is that you have three brothers and then you have three daughters. <laughs> I only have two daughters. Only two? I only have two daughters. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, because Facebook says you have three. Well, just Facebook, how wrong Facebook can be. Fix it. And I do have other daughters. They're not blood. Maybe that's what. Maybe somebody. Put maybe somebody. In maybe Facebook misinterpreted my. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, my mom has an extra son. Yeah, that's the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My best mate Billy. That's fantastic. I love that. And you also so the other one so these are your longest because you do literary adaptations, long form pieces. And Ray Bradbury. And so Trojan War is obviously one of your long form pieces mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with the Helen of Troy. And Shahrazad is also. Yeah, long form. Well, that can sort of, you know, as you know, you can sort of customize and pop in and pop out and pop in and pop out as long as it needs to be or as short as it needs to be. Because of those frame stories, which is. Because those frame stories. Didn't you just do one? Where did I hear you do one? I don't know. I can't tell you. That. Did you just do it the other night at Genesis? Maybe. Didn't you do a Shahrazad? No, I mentioned her, but we didn't. I didn't do a Shahara. Oh, okay. Right. I I told, it was the um, it was that little hunchback. Yeah, that's, that's right. The story that I told, but I didn't tell the whole, you know, the frame yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I just, 
said. We all know about Shahrazad. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Because it was a bunch of storytellers. <laughs> yeah. That was a fun meeting. Oh, the best. I'm going to have to come back to that again. Yes. And then the literary stuff, you've got The Wizard of Oz mm -hmm. and Dracul. Dracula, which is about to come out now because it is October. Nice. Yeah. You've already got a gig ready, lined up. Yes. All lined up. We're working on that. it. We're going to have to get the event combo going soon. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so the... the do you ta do you do you adopt the persona of Dracula or? It is a character in the story that must come through the teller. Yes. But do you so what point of view do you tell? That, hmm? What point of view do you tell that story from? The narrator. Male or female lens. Both. Okay. All right. Absolutely both. Actually, actually. Uh, I've actually, as I'm saying this out loud, I've actually gotten rid of the narrator now. In the last two years, I finally got rid of the narrator and the characters do it entirely without any narration now. Oh, I like that. It took so long, but each piece is told out of their point of view, which includes the exposition you need to keep moving the plot along. So the characters just take over from each other. Then Ben Helsing tells this piece and um, Renfield pops in for a moment and Mina starts us all off and Jonathan and Dracula has his whole piece. And so uh, so that, that was, I've never done anything like that before, but I've done it for a long time, a long time, Dracula. Right. So these pieces, these big pieces, well, even the small ones take time, don't they? I mean, you, you know. Yeah, sometimes they do. Sometimes yeah. you'll find a story that just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like the alien. It just jumps in and takes you yeah. over. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, you could go and perform on a main stage having heard it once and yes. do a cracking job. Yeah. No one will oh, know yeah. that you ever, you know, this is the first yeah. time you've taught it because it's, the right. story is just, you're perfectly in tune to receive it and you got yes. it and you know yes. it and boom. Yes. So right. yeah. So so with the Dracula story, um, I, I've seen pictures of you wearing that outfit with mm -hmm. a high collar. Did you have that made specially for that? No. Oh, you no, didn't? I I didn't. Crazy. I went to. I made a Nordstrom salesperson's day. I was going through the gowns. I knew I needed something opera and elegant that could be both masculine or feminine. Right. Which is that's and, a hard thing to find. Which is a very hard thing to find. In a gown. In a gown. <laughs> And uh, so I, I was kind of wandering around. It was all, you know, bridal bridesmaid. I'm like this. I don't know. I'm just going to have to wear black pants and a white shirt and give this idea up. And she came around. She said, but, and I, <laughs> she went, wait here. <laughs> she came back. You could hear her toes cut. I totally could. She came back with this dress. It's a Natomi. I think it's a Natomi. I'd have to look it up. I think it's a Natomi. Just try this on. It's the only one I have. We just took it, you know, and I zipped that thing on. It was just like Dracula. <laughs> it totally is. It's very Dracula. It's very Dracula. And then it's very feminine. It all depends yeah. on the body gesture when I whoever is possessing me at the time, the outfit works. So yeah. um, but I think I might have to change in Zoom. I don't think it'll work in the Zoom platform. Uh, but yeah. With, you know, yeah, because you need that three quarter length. Yeah, it's very high stage. That's very high stage, yeah. and 
this is much more face to face, nose to nose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting time that we live in. Mm-hmm. With all this technology and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you you also tell folk and fairy tales, right? Because you I do go do. into schools. I do, I do, I do. My you bread do and butter. Go into libraries. I do, I do. Yeah, libraries actually are. Uh, I'm surviving because of the libraries right now. Really? Yeah, I have so much library work. And uh, is that all virtual? It's all Zoom live. Wow. And I prefer it to the recordings. That's just me, and mm-hmm. it may change. But for now, I think the that our audiences need just to know that it's live, that you're out yeah. there. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've, I've done a few recordings, and I look back at them and go, good grief, it looks like I just got out of bed. <laughs> yeah, it's harder. And it's, it's really harder. Yeah, it is. You have to imagine. You have to really imagine that audience out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you do. It's it's a hard one. So do you, what what do you like most? I mean, is is there a favorite form that you like? Do you like your long form literary stories? No, I like you, it all. You like it all? I absolutely like it all. I, I just feel so blessed by every form. And to be able to move around in them, like the fairy tales and folk, the, uh, you know, uh, Fairy tales uh, uh, push the edge of the creative improvisational response to the audience. And then that comes right over into the literary. Yeah. So then the literary stiffness breaks down. But the literary perfection and precision of cinematic image then goes right back over into the folk tales. And all of a sudden you, you know, you know exactly where you are because you can see it. So they are all the forms inform each other. So, I like that. Um, so I love moving around. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't do too much in the way of um, literary stories. I do the monkey's paw. Yeah. <laughs> Most yeah. of the literary stuff is Halloween stuff. Yeah, right? Totally. Yes. Yeah. Um, Robert Louis Stevenson's The, oh, Body, yes. the Body Snatchers, yes. whatever it's called. What, what does a story need to draw you in and, and make you think, I want to tell that story? Well, okay, first off, there is Rafe Martin's voice, forever planted in my head, grown tall as a sequoia tree now. Find stories you love and tell them. So if I don't find something in it that I love, mm-hmm. then I know it's not mine right now. Uh, and sometimes it can feel like anger. Um, when I'm reading something, it really makes me mad. And then I know that I love it. I'm mad because I love it and I want it to be cared for. So if I have a, some sort of a strong response of some kind to it, then, then I grab it up. Um, and then oftentimes it'll just be people will let me know what they need, you know, and then, oh, you need moons and stars. Okay, here I go. Right. And, uh, but you still find the stories that you love. I still find what I love. If I don't love it, I can't. Well, you know what? We can, we can tell stuff, stuff that we don't love, but it's more like, um, it's more like a museum piece. Oh, here, here's this really cool story. It's not really mine. Yeah. But it's really cool. Here, you take it. Right. (laughs) You know, I don't want it. Not mine, but you you might need it. Here it is. You know, there's just a little, uh, that's okay too. You don't have to, you know, be madly, crazily in love with them all, but right. You know the difference when you're hearing a tell or tell when they're in that. It's true. Other. And kids are the biggest 
They'll start if if you're telling a story that you love, they're right there with you. Yeah. And if you're telling a story that is a bit meh. Yeah. I mean I like it. I'm not in love with it. Yeah. Then you start to see the nudging and the poking. (laughs) Totally. That's great. I love that. Meh. That's totally it right there. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is. But so you've also done work with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes, that was uh, really an amazing process. Um, you know, we were talking about folktales and literary. So uh, let's, you have to look at uh, folktale and the precision of music. So Chicago Symphony Orchestras, among the most precise orchestras currently playing on the planet. It's all by note, by rhythm, by uh, the lineage of experience of conductors. It's it's folklore, it's history. All of that is all put so, into this precision. So you think that other symphony orchestras aren't as precise as the I, Chicago? Yeah, I, I would say uh, uh, when I was working, I would have been able to pop off for you the five that were considered the best orchestras in the world. Huh. Um, I've never thought of that before. Because of their devotion to precision. And um, so the goal, their goal, Mm -hmm. um, because of Yo-Yo Ma, Yo-Yo Ma said, this will die if we don't bring our children in. Mm -hmm. So this particular project was we want to bring them in when they're babies, two to five. We want to bring them in two to five years old so that it's in it's in their in their soup and then we'll pick them up at five and we'll put them over to this program we'll from here we'll take care of them from five we'll get them in an instrument right here on five well they're going to pick an instrument that the they heard in the three bears by the time they're five they're going to be like i want to play that that's the three bears right so then um so then they go on from that so this particular project was three to five year olds two to five year olds and so I was coming, well, at that point, I was coming from audience connection, make it up as you go, improv with these kids, because you have to be right on the improvisational dime with children. Yeah. You know, children as you that young. Yeah. God, the math factor is, you know, like, <laughs> so, you know, so that's, so that's where I was, right? And then here's the orchestra, play the notes <laughs> so i had to i had to back all the way back into it's the same words every time we do this performance so more, that's your theater coming back there and then my theater came back wow and um but still my storyteller was there because emotionally i had a great range of how uh, depending on where the kids were. So, and then I just kind of kept pushing at that edge a little bit and um, for good or for bad. That's really cool. So, so you got to meet Yo-Yo Ma. I did. I got to do uh, The Ugly Duckling. I wrote The Ugly Duckling. I wrote them all, all those pieces. Um, and then John Weber, a, a brilliant, um, what's the word when somebody, ra- a, a brilliant arranger, Okay. He would say, we're going to use Copeland's piece for this. We're going to use uh, um, uh, Grieg's 
a Hall of the Mountain King for this. We're going to, he would just pick all these pieces from classical music. And so they were, each one, Simon was like a little Peter and the wolf. Right. They were a little Peter and wolf. So Yo-Yo Ma was going to play the Ugly Duckling. So then I created the piece and always I created the pieces so that the, so that the, the five musicians, we, we got it down to five musicians because mm-hmm. to manage, that's what the kids could manage five instruments and a storyteller. So then the story, then the musicians were actually wearing goose hats and nice. uh, <laughs> quacking and uh, becoming characters. So they were really, really pushed. And that was good for them. Did they enjoy that? I bet they loved it. I bet they did. They totally loved it. It's not something that they would normally do. Yeah, they totally loved it. And connecting with children is, yeah. unless you're not a children's person, but if you're, you know, yeah, it's one of the best things to do. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. A wonderful experience. So you also, you also do the story of Hamilton. Yes. Elizabeth Mrs. Hamilton, Elizabeth. from the Mrs. point of view, because, you know, there's a lot about um, how does a woman find her way to stay? And in the in the Hamilton era, in the age, mm-hmm. it there was less options for a woman to ever leave. Right. So that is a very interesting uh very interesting and important wisdom for our age uh, to learn about how does that all work so uh again i got mad i saw the musical hamilton i got mad because i don't think that manuel who is brilliant and you know it's gobsmacked but i i don't believe that he handled the feminine well Hmm. so you so you had already you were already doing this piece when Hamilton came out. No, I saw Hamilton and then I was mad. Oh, and so that made you mad enough to do the. Yeah. So then I researched yeah. Elizabeth, researched her all the way back, like what really was going on. And I don't think Angelica and he were having an affair. I really don't think so. Okay. Um, and so then I I I learned what seems like a fuller truth. Right about what was going on. And then I offered it up and that was really fun. There was a couple of years there. I was doing that a lot because everybody would see Hamilton right. and then they'd want to hear from Elizabeth Hamilton. And I was able to sort of open up the aperture right. of the story That's a little bit like further, that. you know, like yeah. let's go a little further here. You know, he, he's only got so time, much time. He's got music and dancing. He's got to fit in, right? but there's a lot more here, you know? Right. So, and she was an extraordinary woman. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. She also burnt all those letters. She did. So she didn't want a lot people of half truths that we'll never know. Yeah. She didn't want people to know. So something must have been going on, don't you think? I think that. Uh... All right. So here's, here's the thing. All right. So my parents divorced when I was six. And okay. I, I kept every single letter that my dad wrote you know, <sighs> birthdays, Christmases, all those kinds of things. And then he and I, I can't remember how old we were, we had a massive falling out. And I destroyed, I burnt, I went into the back garden and I burnt every single letter that he sent to me because I was so mad at him. Now, do you think that that might have been um, because she was so mad or do you think she was hiding things? Or can we just 
it could have been either. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think it's I think that it's both. Right. I think that it's both because when you read what is existing, mm-hmm. uh, their vows were their falling in love was an idealized state. And so when he was pretty quickly unable to keep his pants zipped, mm-hmm. uh, it really polluted her whole understanding of is true love possible and she'd seen her mother and father do it her mother and father did it they had a they had a long-term true love so i think that was pretty painful for elizabeth imagine it rocked her world yeah i mean to think that she had true love and then find out that that's not absolutely Absolutely. So I think she went about finding a way to forgive him for his foibles because of the gifts that he was bringing to America. I think she sacrificed her own heart for America. Because she, she, did, she continued his legacy, right? She totally she did. So hard she totally to did. She totally did. A, a woman scorned like that wouldn't normally do something like that yeah i would think definitely heroic she did not cut his clothes and throw them out of the bedroom window no she did not and she learned brutally brutally when he exposed himself publicly so i think the way she survived with the pamphlet brutal so she had no illusions that everything they wrote to each other was going to be picked over by the vultures. Hmm. So I'm pretty sure she burnt it for that. Wow. Like you don't get to have, you don't get to know, you don't get to know, you don't deserve to know. Right. Wow. Sorry. She's an interesting character. Had that moment in your life burning those letters, Simon, that's a big moment. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just the way that it was, and you know, my dad and I are great friends now, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's all it's all mended. Um, yeah, my dad's great. He's f- awesome. <laughs> He's an idiot That's like right. me. Right, <laughs> so. right. Oh my God, right. <laughs> Don't right. fall far from the tree. <laughs> right, and but, but but at six, we can't even begin to function with the ambiguities of right. the world. So, um, another one of the characters that you do is Sherlock Holmes. Yes. So how do you portray that character? Is that Uh, through a narrator as well? That one is through Watson. It's written through Watson. So I put on pants and a shirt. I keep as true to it as possible. So I do it as Watson. So, you know, I grew up with boys. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with masculine. I don't, you know, so uh, the only thing I do to it. Uh, well, you know, with literary stuff, you have to st- trim away that everything that can't go through the ear, right? So, you know, you can't take a paragraph and chunk it through the ear. It's just too, it won't fit. It, it trims so that it can go whoosh into the ear, into the brain. So, uh, so I did that. But um, uh, I, I, I created an arc. I'm always looking for the arc which is uh, some character changes or some community changes or, you know, there's some, something changes. How the story begins um, 
uh, ends different. So uh, I allow Watson to get a little more personal about Sherlock because he says this is his favorite case, the one he can't forget. So I do just a little poking there of why can't Watson forget this case? And then we find out uh, that it's because he sees Sherlock's humanity for the first time. Yeah, because he's not a he's not known for his his humanitarian. No, issues. he's not. He's not. He's not. He's uh, he's perfect and brisk and cold almost. And cold almost. Yeah. yeah. So then that makes it, then the listeners, that really engages the listeners. Then they don't sort of check out, oh, oh it's a radio play. Okay. How, who, who did it? Yeah. And they're also engaged on a human level too. What's going on with Sherlock Holmes? Right. Like they feel like they're going to get inside a little bit of a mystery of him. And then that makes it more engaging. Have you seen uh, Enola Holmes yet? Yes. What did you think of it? I had mixed feelings, but uh, but I, I liked it. I I totally fell in love with it. Yeah, <laughs> to be I, honest, I, it was it was, was light and airy, but yeah. it also poked at a lot of different things. It totally did. And Helena Bonham Carter. Ah, I, she's always good. She is always good. I haven't seen she her in. I haven't seen her do anything that's a bit meh at all. She's always been like. No, right, that's right. No, no such thing. Like Judy Dench. Yeah, right. No meh. Yeah. She just doesn't do anything bad. No, Helen Mirren. No meh. Right. 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 Exactly. I thought the Sherlock Holmes, forgive me, was a little meh. He, he's, yes. Whatever his name is, Clay or whatever. Yeah. What's his name? I I, I like the actor, though, I have to say. I do like the actor, but I thought he didn't like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, he, he. it's not yeah because like like you said sherlock holmes is very cut and dry in the books he's very cold and he he was too pleasant he was and he missed his speed sherlock is always faster than everybody in the room right and uh, i i didn't get that speed from him so i didn't fully buy the manic brain right that's my only, that's my only criticism you could see him working on it like picking up flowers and all that kind of stuff you could. yeah it wasn't yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, if he was at full speed, then maybe Enola wouldn't have found mum first. And that's the whole point, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or she might have had a real equal. Right. That's true. You know, I wanted her to have a real equal. And her mum was obviously a real equal, so. Well, absolutely. I get it. She, yeah. Well, yeah, Helen. Helena Bonham No, man. no match for anyone other than herself she's freaking awesome yeah you've likened storytelling to dancing and i really loved that metaphor that you used because it really is you're dancing with words you're dancing with characters and you're also dancing with the with the audience yes and when i read that that you'd said that and i I was just like yes it's yes it's like a it's like a waltz almost some one of yes. those old big dances yes. yes where your whole body is with a partner and you don't and and you're swapping partners and it's not contra dancing it's, no it's it bigger than that it's, it's more bigger than that yeah it's softer it's smoother it's more foofy yes um, i agree yes it's not foofy but, yeah uh, and and that's what i loved about that metaphor. Yeah. So tell me tell yeah. me about that 
-huh. I think that was about year seven or eight. Uh -huh. You know, I was a story learner. I, I do have some mentees and I do kind of say to them, you know, really be patient. Just be patient because we have to rehearse in public. Right. We do. We do. There's no way around it. You have to learn the vulnerability of rehearsing in public. And then, and so then, so there's all that struggle with control those first couple of years as a teller. And then all of a sudden control breaks through to dancing. Yeah. All right. So for me, I think it was right around year seven where it was just like, ah, oh, my vulnerability became my ally and not my um, tension, my anxiety. It right. was, vulnerability was anxiety before that. Um, and then after that, it became my ally. And, uh, right, you can just look out at the audience and say, hi. Yeah. Shall we dance? Yeah. Right? Hold out your arms. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, who were your mentors other than Rafe? I mean, I'm assuming that Rafe was a mentor to you. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Uh, Rafe, Martin, uh, Jim May's open-hearted uh, community building. Um, he just kept bringing in new people. So I was always just able to watch and watch and watch and learn all of the people he's bringing around from all over the nation. Uh, Janice Del Negro, of course. Um, and uh, Sid Lieberman. Did you ever have the pleasure of hearing any of Sid's work? Uh, only recorded. Um, yeah. And there was a, I got in touch with him and had a conversation with him and emailed with him a couple of times about a story oh. that I wanted to tell, The Wooden Sword. Um, and because I'd, I'd only heard it from him at that particular point. And, and he said, well, yeah, but this is where it came from. And <laughs> sent me down this road that I had to like, all right, I'll go. All right, I'll go do my work. Yeah, <laughs> do my work. I'll ask them if I can tell it. And then, oh, okay, I went and then, oh, it's not from you either. Great. Now I've got to find someone else to ask. Yeah. Um, and he was so wonderful and generous and I was really oh, looking yeah. forward to, uh, seeing him and it was actually, uh, his death and the death of Diane Walkstein that, that prompted me to do this oh. because I wanted to, um, get people like Sid and interview them and yeah. find out about their path because, you know, when, when brother blue passed away and oh, when Duncan Williamson passed away, they were such different characters they weren't placed in any box and so there was a lot written about them and everybody knew about them and what they were like as people and storytellers but when Sid died it felt to me that he left his stories behind but only those other storytellers who worked with him really knew him yes and I felt that I, you know because I had that one contact with him I wanted to know him because, you know, yeah. in that one comment, I was like, this is a really nice guy. I want to meet this guy and I can't yeah. wait to see him perform on the circuit. And I'm going to go and see him and I'm going to go and chat with him. And then he had the heart attack or the complications from the stroke. Yes. And I was just like, what the heck? Yes. You know, like, that's not right. That can't happen. One of his last performances was with us at the Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival at the Genesee Theater. I'd been trying to have him feature him for years and finally worked out in his schedule nice. and uh, he was late and late and late and late and I, 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 I didn't tell that year because some years I don't tell because I just had to manage and direct as the artistic director. Um, what are we going to do? Okay, I'm going to tell. I got So I'm getting a story up ready to go just in case and then he comes in with Adrian and he's just small and withered. 
And Adrian's like, he insisted on coming. I was like, okay, what do you want us to do, Adrian? And she's like, he insisted on coming. And he was just like, I'm going to do this. And they got the microphone on him. And then he went out on that stage and he sat down in a chair and told Pose the pit and the pendulum. <laughs> we were just like, oh. and just in that whole, and the efficiency of sickness. Sickness makes you efficient. It's a great teacher. And so he just had this That the that auditorium seats three thousand. I think we had six hundred in there that night. Mm-hmm. You could have heard a mouse move its tail. I mean, it was like, and then he came off. He was exhausted, but he you could see he was like, I did it. Yeah, I did it. Amazing. Because wow. <laughs> he wasn't old. No, no, Not really. he was aged by the lupus. Right. Yeah, he was aged prematurely by the lupus. So yeah, so I, you know. Yeah, so it's Sid Lieberman to thank for this. Sid, Sid, Sid's precision, and then of course Brother Blue. Uh, Brother, did you get Blue, to meet Brother Blue. I did, and uh, he, of course, was. Uh, I believe he was an, a psychic, an intuitive psychic. He could just read people. He was one of those magic people. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, so I saw him that first weekend, uh, with Rafe and then followed him and, uh, he just kind of, you know, look at me and his brother blue, you know, and I just felt like, okay, okay, I belong. I belong. I can do this. I'm a butterfly blue, you know, I'm a butterfly blue, you know, so, and Diane Wolkstein is the other one you mentioned. Diane, we had a few conversations, but mostly I, I read her what she was writing. Okay. And then we were in a long form festival together, and uh, we had a long conversation about long form that weekend. But uh, her mind was amazing. Hmm. She was a collector. Okay. She was a collector. Yeah, she just wouldn't stop till she had it. She'd just keep. Just keep my that she's translating the Sumerian tablets. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, can I touch you who have touched the tablets? You know, like oh Lord in heaven. I know. I just like to see them. Oh, oh my God! So, so do you, you don't tell Gilgamesh though, do you? I do. Oh, you do? Yeah, Gilgamesh and Anana and um. Because the mission are the only two Sumerians I do. Yeah. I had to do Gilgamesh at a peace festival for uh, tents full of uh, fourth graders, fourth or fifth graders. I mean, I just stood there, Simon, as they were filling the tents. Uh, I, I couldn't Did sleep the night before. Like, how? And then I was. I do it for sixth graders. Oh, well, see, it's an adventure story. It's totally an adventure story. They totally get it. Oh, yeah. But there's a lot more to it than that, too. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. it's not just an adventure story. No, no, I mean for them, though. That's yes, the, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. doorway in. They're going to go the fight way. the monster? Cool. Cool. They're going to fight each other and knock the walls of the city down? Cool. Wow. <laughs> what? They just ripped the bull apart? No way. <laughs> yeah. They don't care about Ishtar. <laughs> no, no, but then it's in. The images are so strong, and it's in, and it's... You know, the sounds of the tent, all those things are memory uh, hooks. Yeah. You know, that punches it into your psyche, the smell, all that. Yeah. Uh, Can you imagine that? Like being a kid and hearing that story and then one day walking into your wedding tent and all of a sudden Gilgamesh comes back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? What? What's going on here? Why am I remembering Gilgamesh? (laughs) (laughs) So if, if you... So you mentor people. You said that, right? You mentor yeah, people. I do. And who are these people that you mentor? Right now, I have uh, an actress mm-hmm. um, who uh, is uh, uh, who has been uh, passionately driven through her calling to be a musical theater person, and COVID. Uh-huh. So she's just twenty, and she's home. And, uh, and try not to go insane. <laughs> she, yeah. Right. And so we're gently detoxing her from the pollution of Broadway. Yes. <laughs> right. It's Broadway or yeah. LA. That's it. Anything other than that, you are a failure. But Chicago is yeah. such a cool place. It's a great place. She's going mean, to be they, fine. They made a musical all about it. Yeah, exactly. 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 So she's her, she's. She's better. She's better again. She's like, I just love it. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to define whether I'm successful or not. Right. It's I'm just, you know, to you. just do it. So yeah. we're going to, uh, uh, our next, uh, our next task is to figure out what story she's going to tell or what character she, she's got to, we're going to kind of figure it out. That's um, really interesting. Cause I never really thought about, you know, if, if you wanted to be an actor, you have to be in one place or another. That's it. Everything else is... in England, you know, which is, you know, my, my, my compass is, or it will probably always be the UK, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- there are all these different places where there are these wonderful theatres that you can go and perform and the repertory companies scattered throughout the country where you can go and learn your chops. And, you know, so I grew up with this whole idea that you can do theatre ev- ev- anywhere and anywhere that you want. You know, you just come up with an idea and do it. And you you, yeah. know, you might not get rich doing that. Yeah. But you'll spend a summer in, you know, never having to yeah. buy a pint at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or a meal. And yeah. you know, the experience that you get from putting on these productions every single night. I mean, do you have anything like that over here? Uh, no. Theaters, I think but like that I kind of mentality. The, I think that the Chicago community... Uh, has done a great job in building a lot of opportunities uh, for the blue collar performer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the pressure of a blue collar performer with the cost of living in Chicago. Yeah. It's, it's really brutal. I can't imagine it's cheap living there. Yeah. So there's still, you know, there's still when you're in Chicago, someday I'll be on Broadway and it'll all be worth it. So there's still this, this North pole of Broadway and this, southern hemisphere of la and anything other than that is sort of like well have you done anything you've been on broadway you know 
yeah, I've been working self-supporting performer, entertainer, educator, mystical magic maker for my whole life. That's something. It is. Have ever performed on Broadway? It's not my measure. Right. Right. My other mentee is actually pure storytelling. She wants to be a storyteller, Carly Landis. She's in college at uh, Prescott, Arizona. Is she all um, right in the head? <laughs> yeah. She's crazy like us, Simon. Yeah. She's crazy. <laughs> right. She's writing stories already. Right. She she is. Like, she's writing them already. I'm like, oh my gosh, Carly. She's done, uh, she started out with uh, Handless Maiden. Because oh, it was big wow. enough for her, right? Yes. And then, uh, well, and because I've designed her curriculum. Um, oh, so you didn't give her the three little bears. No, you gave we her weren't going to do the three little bears. Right. And then, and then a myth. So she picked Echo and Narcissus. That's and a great story. A great story. And then uh, I wanted her to work in um, the literary and the ghost story. We decided to put literary ghost stories because, as we know, they dance very well together. They do. So she's. She just finished Poe's Black Cat. <gasps> I told that once and five people walked out. No! <laughs> yes, but I opened with it, which was a bad thing to do. Oh, yeah, that's not really an opener. You want to earn the not. trust before you're the sociopath? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling it in the first person. Hi, my name is Simon. And <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm in a 12-step program. Oh. Be electrocuted. I love our failures. It's really, we really learn is by our failures. It, yes. And I yeah. shared on a blog the day after. Everybody else, do this. Yeah. This was stupid. <laughs> stupid, 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 stupid. With your stories that you tell, mm -hmm. do you, so we, we talked a little bit about your process, but we didn't really go deeply into your process. Do you, do you work from a script originally? Do you write your stories down? How do you do that? How do you, you come out with your stuff? Yeah, I used to, and I do it less now. So uh, I used to have to, I think, to um, just to sort of, because I was learning structure. Um, so uh, because, of course, Janice Del Negro break your head about structure, which is a, a tremendous gift. And I understood structure from my theater degree. Sorry, I mean, yeah. structure, 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 structure. So to really get the structure, I you know, I'd work on and write them. And then I would have to learn them and then get out of the written. So I was kind of going backwards. Um, That's and, what I do, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I find all the different versions that I can. I yeah. My own version. And then I discard it. Yeah, I think that's right. That's that's how it works for me. Huh, that's interesting. Um, and then the, then then it starts to break through improvisational improvisationally, right? So now I know it so well that I go back uh uh just kind of read it and then I go, "Oh no, that doesn't work anymore." <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, uh, and then it becomes, then it becomes always in that folder on top of the folder is just the scene list. Yes. Right. So then all I have to do is pull out the scene list unless I'm like, I don't remember that dialogue. Go back and look, read the, and, uh, so yeah, I think it, I think it's, I, I like it. I, I'm recommending it to my students all the time because it's how you develop precision. Yeah. 
If you're always improvising, you won't get that trippingly on the tongue that Shakespeare was so right about. Right. Unless you do it so often that it's not improvising anymore. Yeah. Because, you know, what I found... What I found with stories is is that you'll you'll tell it in a certain way, but then it'll start to recreate itself, and then you end up with this whole different story that was really wasn't kind of what you originated. <laughs> it's like, did I used to tell that story like that? That's really interesting. <laughs> but then, if you listen to that same story ten years later, there are you know there are huge changes. I mean, the stories change all the time. They do all the time. And that's what yeah, it's, I love that. And I love you too. I, tell I think that comes back to the to growing into a story. Maybe that's why we're so uh, attuned to the dancing as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Because when you're with a dance partner, they are always changing. If you're with an instrument, it's an instrument. You're changing how you play it, but it's not changing too. But, what but we're if you're playing with other musicians, as, as you know, I'm not a musician, I'm a drummer. Yeah. And I know that drummers hate people saying that, but for me it's pretty much true but when when you're playing with a musician there is that i guess yeah. it's not the instrument it's the other person that you're playing with, yes, dancing right? with the other musician that's right right, right. yeah mm -hmm. oh, i like that yeah i think we hit on it here we did, we did. yeah what's your favorite meal of the day? my favorite meal mm -hmm. oh my gosh um spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> there you go that's nice and easy are they Swedish meatballs? No, they're not. <laughs> My father was so shut down from his Swedish ancestry. He's 100% Swedish. And he grew up on the uh, west side of Chicago. So he was, you know, he was, why spaghetti? I have no idea. Oh, I do. I do. Um, anyway, that was once a week was dad's spaghetti. I, I, he must have, like, been working as I'm swearing, he must have been working some of his stuff out there in the spaghetti pot. Yeah. Because it wasn't the same recipe. It was in the refrigerator and mumbling and this and adding this and, you know, Cornish hens sometimes and mandarin oranges, just like crazy spaghetti thing. And, um, uh, but it was his favorite dish and it became mine. Just whenever there was something, dad would say, I'm going to make you some spaghetti, Meg. Wow. I did um, 23 and me. I learned. Still kind of new. Two years now. Yeah. Two years we're going. Um, uh, his 23 and me showed that my father's Swedish ancestry originated in Sicily. Really? There was this whole migration of fishing Sicilians who emigrated up to that south section of uh, Sweden. So it's in the DNA, this like Sicilian, I'm like spaghetti! <laughs> totally what it is. It's totally what it is. <laughs> oh my God. That's so cool. Well, that was a great question. I didn't expect that to be an emotional question. Absolutely. You probably find that opens people up, though. Sometimes. Because it's food. Yeah. They mm -hmm. usually save it for the end, though. So maybe yeah. I should start throwing it at the beginning. <laughs> people are like, what the heck am I talking about food for? Yeah. So where, where would your favorite place to be to eat that? Uh, uh, God, just the closest distance from the pot 
Okay, so you know, so the noodles go in and the sauce goes in and the meatballs go in. So the closest place I can get to to sit down and start eating it is my favorite place to be to eat spaghetti. Okay, so where would your favorite place be to cook that pot? Oh, to cook that pot? Well, if you're going to eat it right there, I need to know where you're going to cook it. Well, you know that I'm going to say in in the not alive party with my dad. Oh, there you and go. that just changed me right now saying that out loud because I can do that now every time I make spaghetti I can invite my dad in my kitchen I, love I don't it. have to miss him I can I'm invite him forward to that day when yeah when my folks go yeah it's kind of like that with me and my granddad he's he's my he's my dude and he's on my desk mm. he, he goes everywhere with me and it's you know should I be doing this <laughs> yeah. he's always there yeah. Anyway, passion and calling. Yeah. What else do we have in this crazy chaos? Passion and calling. Right. This is the great litmus test, right? Yeah. What is your I favorite food, Simon? Well, um, I do like I do like pizza, um, <laughs> but I think my favorite food has to be Indian. I do love oh. good Indian food. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, Mexican food is also one of my favorites. Yeah, all I that flavor. Burritos. Yeah, yeah, burritos and and. I'm a vegetarian, so you know there's no mm. dead animal in it. But like Indian food and and Mexican food is just mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> no dead animals and lots of flavor. Yes, yeah, right, perfect. Yeah. Well, Megan, thank you so much for um, being on my podcast with me. Um, thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank um, you. I, I, there's still pleasure. so much I want to ask you about, actually. I, I'm gonna ask another question because this is this is for me this is one of the reasons I love your work so much, Megan, is based on all your your the way that you present your stories. And the way that you present your stories is with that minimal use of word. Um you're very sparse on your word choices, but your mm-hmm. word choices are perfectly pitched oh thank you and the emotional layer that you bring to a story it's it's so deep how do you get to that place when you're working mm. on something that's thank you for that um I mean, even that you know because i heard you the other night with with um janice and you're mm-hmm. telling that story about the you know coming over from ireland yeah and that was it was just a snippet of what i imagine is a much larger piece mm-hmm um, and I, from the conversation afterwards, it's based on your family coming over from mm-hmm. your Irish roots as opposed to your mm-hmm. Swedish roots. Right, right. But the the layer of emotion in that story, or the layers of emotion in that story, and and the precision of your language is just gorgeous. How do you how how do you choose to how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I think I'm I think I'm just really in love with the power of words to create reality. I mean, I can't answer it. That's the deepest answer I can give you. It's the it's the breath of what some people call God. Our words and the way we use them uh, heal people or hinder people. Um, and so for me. I have this sacred feeling, um, like a sacred duty 
uh, to the story to make it as uh, uh, truthful and alive as possible without a whole lot of Megan in it. I really try to get Megan out of the way. But what Megan is, is my instrument, is my instrument, right? Right, yeah. Right, and I'm, I personally experienced a lot of wounding, and I've done a lot of work uh, with my own PTSD. My own, I've done a lot of deep inner life work. So I think I understand people with a great forgiveness. So I think that infuses the stories. So I don't tend to have good guys and bad guys. I tend to have uh, people caught up in uh, powers uh, that they can't quite see yet. And sometimes you have to decide whether the audience sees it or not, or, you know, there's right. just, there's, there's so many layers going sometimes on. Sometimes that comes in the time, depending on the audience. I yes, find. that's right. There have been some, you know, I started a story the other day and I was like, I can't tell this. And then I was like, no, I have to tell this. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny how stories do that to you. Isn't oh, it? God, They'll come up and bite you and say, "You're gonna tell me, <laughs> or I'm gonna tell you apart." Like, You're gonna tell me apart if I tell it. What are you talking about? <laughs> totally. Oh, so thanks God. for doing this. I so yeah, appreciate my it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Wow, what an experience that was. Megan opens the heart. Well, she opened mine for sure. It felt to me that we had known each other forever but this was really the first time we have properly spoken other than in passing. Check out Megan's website, meganwells.com, and hire her. Megan is M-E-G-A-N. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes, and if you think that I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me a, an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook and on my website at Simon Brooks Storyteller, Instagram, Simon M. Brooks Diamond Scree Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller A shout out to Chris Jed for creating, recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast His band is called Blackpool Mecca Check them out You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription in return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. Patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Thanks to Scott and Robin, Ted, Tatiana, Rachel, Ann, Lisa, Chris, Cynthia, Jenny, Merrick, Eleanor, Ralph, Lauren, Hope, Pat, Alicia, Andy, Kristen, Valerie, Jim, and Tim. Also, special thanks to Barry Malik and to Kate Dudding, who recently joined. Want your name mentioned? Become part of the gang. Become one of my patrons. And if you can't join these wonderful folks, I understand, then please help out and do something that you can do. Take a moment of your time. Just write a review on Pogbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this episode. It won't take long and it helps not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places that you could be. I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, wear those masks, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's, it's just, just a story. story. <laughs> just a story. Yeah.